The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? As of last month, if you're a British national overseas passport holder living in Hong Kong, you're able to have a road to citizenship when coming to live in the UK. That offer was made last year by the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, concerned about China's passing and implementation of the national security law in the city. But it got me thinking, what will the people who take up this offer be leaving behind? When I went to Hong Kong, I was surprised at how different it was to what I was expecting, which was really mainland China, I guess. So as potentially up to 3 million BNO passport holders consider their options, this episode is a look at the city and how its very special identity formed. And joining me is Professor Steve Tang, who is the director of the SOAS China Institute and author of many books on China, including A Modern History of Hong Kong, which is the best book to get you started on understanding the history of the city. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. I think that listeners to Chinese Whispers would have followed closely what's been happening in Hong Kong in recent years, but I actually wanted to start at the beginning. You left Hong Kong in the early 1980s, and if you don't mind my aging you, you were born in 1959. What was the Hong Kong of the 60s and the 70s like? Hong Kong in the 1960s was still a bit of a colonial backwater being modernised and by the standard of the 1960s, modernization meant industrialization. And the 70s, it moved from being an industrial colony to ones that had a ever-enlarging surfacing sector, particularly the financial services, which made Hong Kong eventually to become a global financial center of the first league. Now, that really happened in the 70s and into the 80s. So by the beginning of the 1980s, when I left, Hong Kong was a very prosperous and efficient place. I think the comparisons I would have made of Hong Kong 1981 with any city in the world, it would have been Manhattan in New York. So that standard of living must have changed very fast in those two decades that people were still dealing with real poverty at the beginning of the 1960s. I think you're absolutely right there. If we're looking at the beginning of the 1960s, Hong Kong had a lot of very, very poor people. The middle classes was relatively small, but growing very fast. By your early 1980s, the middle classes will have been the mainstay of Hong Kong life, with a large part of the working classes sort of merging into your lower middle classes, with the distinction being much more difficult to define. 
So that transformation was very, very significant. It also meant, by the beginning of the 1980s, Hong Kong was very much a consumer society, whereas in the beginning of the 1960s, people were happy if they could just get by. And let's get on to those later years in in just a second. For now, just sticking with those two decades of the sixties and the seventies, what was the relationship between the Chinese Hong Kongers, you know, the colonized as it were, and their governors? Was there a sense of second class citizenry, or had that by that point changed because the colonial government had also changed the way it was doing things? The two decades you have picked, the. From say nineteen sixties to nineteen eighty, it was the most transformative two decades of Hong Kong's history. Now it start off with the old-fashioned colony, where the local ethnic Chinese communities, by and large, keep to themselves, and the expatriate, by and large, kept to themselves, with a bit of mixing in the workplace, but really. Uh, not huge amount of socializing. Now the colonial government also changed. In nineteen sixty, for example, the colonial government still has a senior, top level official with the title of Secretary for Chinese Affairs, who is kind of slightly in parallel to the colonial secretary, who was, if you like, the chief secretary, the chief minister for the whole colony. And you start off therefore with a colonial government where most of the colonial government was structured to support, well, actually the expatriate British community, with the secretary for Chinese affairs responsible for the ninety to ninety-five percent of the population who were local Chinese. Now, by nineteen seventy, there was no secretary for Chinese affairs any longer. There was a secretary for home affairs.、Mm. The whole thing has changed. The colonial government in that ten years has shifted its mentality from looking at the Chinese community as a separate community to, but this is our community. Local and expatriate, they are all Hong Kong community, and it was this decade of trans transition that we saw a local sense of Hong Kong identity. Coming up, and coming through, we noticed that because in the second half of the nineteen sixties, there were riots in Hong Kong, including in particular in nineteen sixty seven, which was the spillover of the Cultural Revolution from China into Hong Kong, when the hardcore Maoists were protesting in Hong Kong and causing all kinds of disturbances. And you had the undergraduates at the university in Hong Kong who were at the forefront in coming out to organize the local populations to rally to support the colonial government to return Hong Kong to order, which was what most people in Hong Kong want. And so you have seen in this decade that transformation of people. Who begins to have a clear, strong sense of identity with the colonial government, changing and adjusting, and realizing that this is what it needs to do, in orders to stay relevant to the society, 
to do the job of maintaining stability, good order, and therefore enable prosperities to happen. Was that identity actively with the British? Did anyone feel British, or did anyone feel? You know, in in your book, the history of Hong Kong, you set out very nicely the ideas in that in the eighties, for example, when Hong Kongers start to embrace rule of law and other, you know, very almost British notions in terms of how to run your country. But was there that cultural identity with that at the time? And especially because they didn't have democracy, you know, something that the British parliamentary system wasn't exported to Hong Kong in those decades. What was really Interesting of Hong Kong in the nineteen eighties was how much of the kind of way of life that people in the UK take for granted have been embraced by people in Hong Kong, and they adopted them as their own core values. Your rule of law, your expectation of the government being responsible, without. Actually, having a democratic system in the case of Hong Kong, so Hong Kong's government in the nineteen eighties was very unusual. It was highly responsive to public opinion, without the formal mechanism of being held responsible through periodic elections. So you have therefore people embracing the core values of the British political system. Without feeling particularly British about it, and that's partly because the education system in Hong Kong did not go out of its way to try to make people feel that way. A benevolent dictator. It was a benevolent, autocratic system that was very responsive to opinions of the subject. And on that responsiveness, am I right in thinking that it got more responsive as time went on? That even though Hong Kong at that stage wasn't democratic, there were democratic experiments later on that then provided the basis after handover in 1997 for Hong Kong to establish its legislative council and so to start practicing democracy under the later years of the British colonial governorship. There were elements of elections that were introduced in Hong Kong. The first half of the nineteen eighties was also the period when the United Kingdom and China negotiated for the future of Hong Kong, and when it became clear that China would take over the sovereignty of Hong Kong by nineteen ninety seven at the latest, there was a strong demand locally. That people should be given the vote and have a democratic system in place, so that it would give them protection against Hong Kong being part of. In those days, they still call it communist China. Let's not forget that China has changed tremendously from the nineteen eighties to now. To nineteen eighties, it was still very much the old-fashioned communist state in China, and it was also something that the. British government under Margaret Thatcher was seriously looking at, because if a British government is going to hand over British subjects to a communist country, they at least want to be able to say that we hand over a ongoing democratic system to the new sovereign power. But then they got a problem 
the Chinese government would not have any of it. And the Chinese government basically said, we want the system in place being handed over to us. And we will agree to keep that basically unchanged for 50 years from 1997. So don't you start playing monkey business and start turning Hong Kong into a democracy, which it has not been previously. So you can't do it. So what we then have in the 1980s into the 1990s was the introduction of more electoral elements, but never able to give the opposition or any opposition in the Legislative Council the capacity to form a majority government. So the government would always be appointed either by London before 1997 or by Beijing post-1997. And Hong Kong cannot become a fully democratic system. Mm. And let's talk about that giant on the doorstep, China. You've already mentioned identity. And I just want to go back a little bit on to what you were mentioning about the Maoist protests. So 1967, this was when the Cultural Revolution in China started. And by the Maoists in Hong Kong, do you mean people who were enamoured by the ideals of the Cultural Revolution and wanted to start a Cultural Revolution in Hong Kong as well? So they were looking across the... Maoists in Hong Kong were people who not only were members of the Communist Party, because even members of the Communist Party in Hong Kong had different factions and there were divisions, is those who were the loyal followers of Chairman Mao in staging the Cultural Revolution in China, who were doing the same thing in Hong Kong. And that's why, in a sense, it was a spillover of what was happening in China into Hong Kong. And I think what the Maoist here represents is almost just a facet of how much China influenced Hong Kong even during the colonial years. Uh, I mean, a lot of the Hong Kongers then were recent immigrants, either having left China in their lifetimes or their parents had done. So that cultural and ethnic link to China was always there. The ethnic and cultural links were extremely strong particularly to the uh, province of Guangdong, which was just next to Hong Kong. The lingua franca in Hong Kong really was Cantonese, or it is Cantonese to this date. Even though the Cantonese in Hong Kong has developed in a way that is slightly different from the Cantonese in Canton by now, yes, that link is very, very strong. But the difference between the events in China itself and in Hong Kong is significant because the border was completely closed in 1949. So before 1949, you could cross the border without papers. And if you were a Cantonese speaker, you would have automatic right of a vote in Hong Kong. They, nobody would ask you any question whether, where you come from. If you were a non-Cantonese speaker trying to get into Hong Kong, sometimes the border patrol in, in, in between Hong Kong and, and, and China could check on you and say, ask you, what are you, who are you, why are you coming to Hong Kong, what are you going to do? And mostly after, after that, they just wave you in anyway. But if you're Cantonese, no question asked. Was there yearning in much of the Chinese population in Hong Kong for the motherland, this idea of the grass is greener that you've alluded to that was shattered when they could actually start going to China? Was there, was there yearning for roots? 
there definitely was with the younger generations. I mean, I was a teenager in Hong Kong in the 70s. And with the opening of China in the last few years of Chairman Mao's rule, there was a China fever in Hong Kong. The younger generations from the undergraduates down to the uh, more senior high school kids, we were all trying to explore our Chinese roots. How are you trying? How are you doing it, Steve? Well, the first trip outside of Hong Kong, not a trip being t- t- taken by my uh, parents, but that I took myself, was to go to China. I think I was I was eighteen. I was in my first year as an undergraduate at the University of Hong Kong. I got on the train, went to China with my then girlfriend. I she was perfectly beautiful young lady, but when I crossed the border, I couldn't look at her. I was looking everywhere at the countryside. I wanted to explore. I wanted to know Mother China. I don't think I was an exceptional person. Uh, there were a whole generation of people who tried to explore that, and this is the generation who then would discover their Hong Kong identity. Because of that intensity of the urge to search for their Chinese root, and in their visit to China, then they realize, but they are different from us. And I can remember when I returned to Hong Kong at the border, walking. In those days, you had to physically walk across the border. You were not allowed to get on the trains on the through train. And getting off the train. At Shenzhen, walking towards the Lowu Bridge, I saw the Union flag, and I saw British Hong Kong colonial policemen in khaki. It was summer, and I thought, "Yes, I'm coming home. Yes, this is us." That was the first time I had a sense of Hong Kong identity. And I didn't realize until I went to live and work in Hong Kong how close Shenzhen was. These days, you can hop on a train and be in Shenzhen within fifteen minutes, having left Hong Kong. Shenzhen now is known as the Silicon Valley of China. It's headqu- it's home to the headquarters of numerous tech and financial firms, from Tencent to Huawei. But the Shenzhen of the nineteen eighties, I mean, it must have not been anything like that. And I think that's symbolic, really, of the wider changes that's happened to China over the last few decades. That the poverty that China was still undergoing at a point at which Hong Kong was getting stronger economically. Nineteen eighty, Shenzhen was paddy fields, and a few village houses. Not a hell lot more than that. I remember going to Shenzhen around eighty eighty one, and that really was. Was it? It's a relatively small village at the border of China and Hong Kong, and completely sleepy, forgotten farming place. Yes. And now it is a bigger metropolis than Hong Kong itself. Its infrastructure is more modern than the infrastructure in Hong Kong. It's completely created almost out of nothing. So then, moving on to the nineties, handover is getting closer and closer. And 
here I just want to pick out the you know the the language of handover in English. That's what it is. In Mandarin, it's hui gui return, which is very different and I think very important to understand how the Chinese mainlanders at that point saw Hong Kong. And I remember, you know, my first public memory to age myself in the 90s was the excitement, the fervor that Hong Kong was returning home. Did Hong Kongers feel that way? It was it's a really good question because people in Hong Kong had very mixed feelings in 1997. I was in Hong Kong for the handover. I was actually advising the BBC with their coverage on the handover. It was really interesting to be there and see how people were responding to it. You had enthusiasms for both sides at the same time without feeling contradiction. So you had, before the actual handover, families in Hong Kong so often they bring in the grannies and the babies going to the government buildings in Hong Kong to take photos of the colonial albums to remember colonial Hong Kong. And at the same time, a few hours later with the actual handover ceremony, people were clapping and ex- celebrating for the return to China. And they were using both language. They were talking about it as a handover they were talking it about a hui gui, a return. They didn't see a contradiction because there was this promise that Hong Kong would be allowed to stay as it was for 50 years, that the wage of life in Hong Kong would not change. And people would were actively looking at that change over. And at midnight, all you had was that the police officers taking off their hats changing the cap batch and putting their hats back is the same old colonial uniforms they want before, but the cap batch has changed. The crown has been replaced by the new symbol of the special administrative region. And people in Hong Kong were okay about that. They were happy about that, by and large. I think those must have been happier times for relations between Hong Kongers and mainlanders and how they saw each other. I remember my mum telling me about how she used to dance to canto pop, pop music from Hong Kong in Cantonese, hence the name, which drove 1980s Chinese students crazy because until then they'd only really heard very stale communist music or had bootlegged Taiwanese music. But in the 1980s, China was opening up. You could go to nightclubs and listen to these things. And she, she recalls that very fondly. But since then, I feel like there's a lot of prejudice on both sides. I myself experienced some of it when I went to Hong Kong. I was called a mainlander, not necessarily in a bad way, but I also heard stories of what, what Hong Kong people thought mainlanders were like. So I felt like there was a bit of tension, a bit of, I wouldn't say enmity, but certainly prejudices that Hong Kongers had towards mainlanders that I'm sure mainlanders have towards Hong Kongers as well, tied up with the differing economic development. You know, if Shenzhen being the example that Shenzhen now has, is so much richer now than a lot of people in Hong Kong, that tension, it pulls those two groups of people. And I think that we've seen that in the protests in that a lot of mainland Chinese people are not sympathetic to the cause, even though you would think that democracy for Hong Kong is democracy for mainland as well. And that was the period when you saw that beginning of a different sense of identity and an element of discrimination. And I would 
say that the discrimination start off with Hong Kongers feeling superior to the mainlanders, which didn't make the mainlanders feel so good about it. And by your sort of late nineties into your noughties, and even more in the last decade, with China doing so phenomenally well, you have now more mainland. People in Hong Kong who are richer than your average Hong Kongers, and you have mainland tourists going to Hong Kong who would frequent the most expensive establishments. Whether you're talking about services, restaurants, or the kind of top brand expensive shops, then your local people would frequent, and you again generate a different kind of resentment from. Your Hong Kong people towards the mainlanders that oh no, those are uncultured newer rich, they don't behave very well. They're uncivilized yet they have the money to splash. And that kind of create a kind of antagonism, and then you once you have that, you have the kind of image of Hong Kong people being unfriendly to mainlanders spreading across China. So your Chinese tourists going to Hong Kong. Would have been told that ah,、uh, those Hong Kong people—they are—they really are very rude to us. They are very bad to us, and they are therefore also less likely to behave better, because if they think that you are going to be not nasty to us, we are not going to be very nice to you. I mean, human relationship is like the basic law of physics: action and reactions <laughs> are equal and opposite. So you get into a bit of a vicious circle in the two sides, not appreciating each other as much. When it is in their interest to work together, and I think the impenetrability of Cantonese and Mandarin probably really contributes to this. I'm a Mandarin speaker. I don't understand a word of Cantonese. Although when I was in Hong Kong, I did learn how to say "basi zem goi," which I'm probably butchered, but basically means you know is the way to get around town and ask a minibus to stop for you. But that impenetrability of language means that the two sides are finding it hard to understand each other, probably. You're all Chinese, but you're not. At the same time, you're not quite all Chinese. I think the Cantonese language is certainly a, a difficult one there, and also because the Cantonese language is is a very harsh tonal language, and so when your Cantonese makes friendly jokes to a non-Cantonese speakers, it can come across as being very cross, very rude. Even though you don't know exactly what is being said. Now, Steve, we're recording this in a moment where young Hong Kongers have been taken to the streets for years over what they see as an encroachment to one party, two systems. Do you think the Chinese leaders in 1997 meant what they said about protecting those two systems? I think the Chinese government in 1997 did mean what they promised. The problem here really is that. The understanding of what those promises were had always been different, in terms of how that is being understood by the people of Hong Kong and by the Chinese government.、Uh, for the first twenty years of Hong Kong under Chinese jurisdictions, they were able to fudge the difference.、Uh, in the last two years or so, the Government in Beijing, in particular, was no longer willing to tolerate that.
So what came out as major protests, street protests in Hong Kong, were repressed, and that completely changed the dynamics. I mean, let's not forget that 2019 was the not the first time after 1997 when people in Hong Kong found a Chinese law that were to be introduced into Hong Kong highly objectionable, and objected to it by a massive protest. That happened in two thousand and three, when the Hong Kong government, under instruction from Beijing, tried to introduce a version of a national security law into Hong Kong, in accordance with Hong Kong's basic law, Hong Kong's constitution. But because the law was so draconian that people objected, half a million of people went out to protest completely peacefully, and that piece of legislation was pulled. And Hong Kong returned to what it was before. Now, so when the extradition bill was introduced in June twenty nineteen, again in the first instance, we were talking about roughly half a million of people in Hong Kong going out to protest against the、uh, legislations that they found draconian and unsuitable. If the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region Government had pulled the bill. As its predecessor did in twenty in two thousand and three, that would have been it. But they eventually did shelf the law. But by that point, the protesters had their five demands that went beyond the shelving of the extradition law. In between, things change dramatically in Hong Kong. The original peaceful protests were met with police measures. Which, by the standard of most policing in most cities, were not draconian. They were mostly used by way of pepper sprays and tear gas. But by the standard of Hong Kong, that was excessive use of force. Again, going back to where we started, the nineteen eighties Hong Kong developed something very special. In the nineteen eighties, Hong Kong people developed a rapport. With the local police force, and the Hong Kong police force was would be able to police massive demonstrations. Again, we are talking about half a million of people in the streets in Hong Kong in June nineteen eighty nine, in response to the massacre in Beijing in、uh, that year, and there was not one single incident because the police had ways to police the demonstrations. In ways that were being seen as very friendly, helpful, and positive, and therefore got the full support of the local people. The police did not have to use force of any kind.、Uh, in fact, they sent out the riot police in with soft hats, with all the riot gears carefully hidden away somewhere else. So you have a period of over twenty years when the local people. Have developed expectations of how Hong Kong was to be policed. So suddenly, a peaceful demonstration being met with tear gas and pepper spray really angered the, the local population, and they thought, "What's going on?" And then you have a bunch of young people amongst the protesters who say, "Peaceful demonstration doesn't work. Let's do something." You taught us to be violent. 
you taught us peaceful protest doesn't work. That's one of their slogans. That's how they actually, how that developed. And then once you have a small group of protesters using violence, the police very quickly escalated the scale of force being used. And you have a very quick escalation in that force, which resulted very quickly in the protesters in late June, beginning July, coming up with the five demands, not one last. They make out five clear demands on the government in Hong Kong and not willing to accept any kind of compromise at that point. Do you think that relationship with the police will ever return to what it was like in the 80s and the 90s? I I listened to this fantastic This American Life podcast, which interviews a Hong Kong family. The dad was a policeman and the son was a protester. And to hear them talk, you know, it incredibly just pulled apart the family. Uh, No, I don't think a return to the... Uh, relationship between the police and the citizenry of the 1980s and 1990s could ever return. The special relationship between police and citizens in Hong Kong in the 80s and the 90s happened in a particular context. That was the tail end of British colonial rule. The police had a tradition of following British-style policing to begin with. So the basic ethos was to use minimum force and only use force if you absolutely need to. With the additional conditions that in late colonial Hong Kong, if you were the police and if you beat up people, you could trigger a whole lot of unintended consequences that could result in the end, premature end of British rule in Hong Kong. So you just don't do it. And that's how they developed all these much more advanced methods of policing mass demonstrations, which even the Metropolitan Police in London in the 1980s and in the 1990s did not know. Now, after the changeover in 1997, two things happened. The SAR government, the Special Administrative Region government in Hong Kong, is not or does not feel that it's a colonial government. It does not feel that its credibility and and legitimacy could ever be in doubt because it is a government of their own people. So it doesn't have that automatic mechanism to get itself to be much more cautious and non-provocative. And the policing tradition was also changing. Before 1997, your primary point of reference for policing in Hong Kong is British policing. Post-1997, even though every year you still have a senior police superintendent in Hong Kong who is being sent to the World College for Defence Studies in London to work with the British, the majority of Hong Kong police officers were being sent to China to exchange experience with Chinese public security officers who have a very, very different ethos and tradition and standards from the old Royal Hong Kong Police Force. So by the time we're talking of the protests of 2019, we already have a significant period of change in the Hong Kong Police Force. Even though the British heritage of the Hong Kong Police Force had not been jettisoned, but a lot of it had already been modified by 
these more senior officers uh, exchanges with their Chinese counterparts. And that's why when it came to the situation of your local commander making a call as to do you use tear gas and pepper spray, it became so much easier for the police to use them than in the 80s or the 90s. So, Steve, looking ahead then, the British National Overseas Visa is now active so that if you have one of those passports, you are able to come to the UK for five years and then apply for residency after that. How much do you think the uptake of that scheme will be? Will it exceed expectations? I don't think we know what the number will be. I think it will be a significant number. It will not be a negligible number. But the actual number of people who will take up up to the offer from the British government will depend a lot on how the Chinese government responds to it. And it will also depend on how restrictive the Hong Kong Special Administrative Government gets to people who can claim BNO passports. The more restrictive and repressive the Hong Kong or Chinese government approach to the passport will be, the more people will take up the option of leaving Hong Kong and try to establish a new life in the UK. The overwhelming majority of people in Hong Kong who qualify do not want to leave Hong Kong. They love Hong Kong. They want to stay. If they can stay, they would prefer to stay. They are only looking at the options because the passing of the national security law in 2020 got a lot of them really terrified. And they're terrified not only about their own way of life, they're terrified about the future of their children. And that's why they thought, okay, we will have to look at alternatives. And the UK has provided alternative so we will we we will we will look at it and we may want to take that up if it works for us it will not be for everybody and it will also be particularly unattractive if one belongs to the not so well off not so well educated working classes um, they would ask the very simple question i don't speak english that well i can't get a professional job what am I going to do if I go to England? Okay, I can support myself for five years, but after that, what? I don't want to be on benefits. Hong Kong is not a benefit culture. We don't want to go to England and, and, and lift on handouts. I won't go. I, I, I can deal with this. It's much more your professional middle classes who have qualifications that are, in fact, accepted in the UK anyway. Your medics, your lawyers, your financiers who can actually get jobs comparable to what they would have been able to get in Hong Kong. Steve Tang, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. And thank you for listening to this episode. Instead of the normal theme tune, I think I'll play you out with the canto pop that's had the most impact on my life. This next song, here sung by Francis Yep, took mainland China by storm, not least because it was the theme tune to a very popular TV show called The Bund, Shanghai Tan, which I grew up watching even in the 90s. So here it is. Long bun, long la. 
尽了世间事，浑作滔滔一片潮流，是喜是愁，浪里分不清欢笑悲。